Now you hear it. When you're a child, you learn there are three dimensions. Height, width, and depth. Like a shoebox. Then later you hear there's a fourth dimension. Time. From Seattle, we're drinking the movies. I'm Taylor Baker. And I'm Michael Clausen. All right, Michael. We are once again drinking the Lilypad IPA from Hellbent Brewing Company. We're recording two episodes today. This is the second recording of the day. We just wrapped up the Tribeca Film Festival 2021 episode. Um, now we're rescreening Michael Mann's Thief. Lilypad IPA, still tasty. I think this is the second Michael Mann movie we've talked about on the show before. I think Miami Vice is the only other one we did, unless I'm Correct. forgetting something. I definitely, I forced Miami Vice on us. Yeah, I'm trying to remember if that was part of a theme or if we just did Miami Vice for the heck of it. No, it was It was definitely a theme. I can't remember what else we talked about that episode, but I, I, I definitely backdoored my way into a Miami Vice film because I really thought that, like Black Hat, you would love that film and that you hadn't seen it. And I think that now I'm two for two mm. on Michael Mann recommendations. Um, so if I get every other recommendation wrong, at least I'm two out of two, two with Michael Mann. Those are the ones you tout instead. Yep. But first, we'll do a first impression of our next rescreening title, as always. What do we got? We have A Woman Under the Influence. All right, I'll say it. I still think you're a son of a bitch for putting her away. You send her away. You could have picked her up. It is too much. Now, this is a big chance. She's my mother. I know it's your mother. I'm going to take it off. Let me answer the policy to my mother. Hello? Hi, Mama. All right, Michael. That was the trailer for John Cassavetti's film, A Woman Under the Influence, starring his wife, Gina Rollins. What do you think about what we just witnessed? Well, first of all, I have to respond to just the trailer itself, which I actually think was a great trailer. I think at the very start of it, it said BFI. Uh, so British maybe film this is, too, yeah, yeah, I think this may be like a, maybe they put out a disc or something like that for this particular Cassavetti's film. But I think it's a great trailer. I like something that, you know, doesn't get too into plots, just kind of giving us a sense of tone and style, the naturalism you'd kind of expect mm-hmm. from him. Um, Literally really just nice lifting a few scenes and putting them together. Yeah, yeah. You're seeing the, uh, you know, t- title of the film kind of against a black screen with the images playing out within the words. Really beautiful trailer. Uh, and I think it looks great. I'm very psyched. Um, seen a handful of Casvetti's, but more to go. Um, we are on a tighter timeline than usual as we approach our discussion of this movie so mm-hmm. we both have a little bit more of a crunch time mm-hmm. in terms of our viewing so hopefully maybe try to get in one or two more probably prioritize some gina rollins ones maybe um personally but um yeah i, do, I don't know um that i have anything too specific it looks like a cassavetti's movie very naturalistic um i kind of like the just focus on a relationship. Uh, I think this one might be a little bit more emotional for me. Sometimes they can be a little bit tough to access, I think, but that's also kind of the appeal is they're so um, sort of so raw. That, that's part of the mm-hmm. the interest about them. What about you? Yeah, I, I echo 
I would echo a lot of the things you're saying. I particularly like that the trailer is rather than a standard trailer. It is very much cutting out extended sequences of the film and putting them kind of back to back to back Mm. so that you're not trying to really market me. You're just trying to Mm. advertise um, the contents of emotionality almost. Mm. So it's, it's a very different approach than trying to like just cut a bunch of pretty faces and have a cool soundtrack. It's look at this extended moment where he answers the phone while this beautiful woman is sitting on him and then she leaves because she's upset that he answered the phone. I think that's a lot more interesting and intriguing Mm -hmm. to me, um, especially when the contents of a film are actually good. Obviously, if the contents of the film are not good, you cannot pull (laughs) such a a sequencing of advertising off. Then you just cut really fast between different stuff. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) With a totally different soundtrack that you will never hear the song or soundtrack of within the film itself. Crank the bass. Um, I I love Cassavetti's uh, theatrical version of of the killing of a Chinese bookie. Um, the films I've seen since then are good. They're not nearly as enamoring as the killing of a Chinese bookie was for me. There's, there's something very magic and propulsive about that film. I get the sense. This is very different. Um, there was an illusion in one of the scenes about why did you put it away? Um, if that means what I think it means about maybe, bringing her to a mental institution. This is going to be a little bit more personal than Mm. um, a lot of other films we talk about. I I have had a grandmother who was put against her will in a um, psychological Mm. um, holding center um, that Mm. almost everyone disagreed with besides the people that make the decisions in the family. Um, So watching that might be a little bit more emotional for me. So I'm, I'm looking forward to this experience and seeing this era of when that was uh, when that was reality, yeah, yeah, could be heavy stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. On to Michael Mann's film Thief. You want to put down contract scores all over the country, working directly for me? I am self-employed. Geisty lights, just diamonds or cash. Fine. I'll make you a millionaire in four months. I wear a hundred and fifty dollar slacks. I wear silk shirts. I wear eight hundred dollar suits. I wear a gold watch. I wear a perfect D flawless three carat ring. I'm a thief. Do you think that I have been waiting for you to come along? You gonna marry her and have some kids? Yes. Hey, I'm talking to you. Hey. Why what? What is going on in your life that is so terrific? I'm just, I'm just asking you to be with me. Right, Michael. We have James Kahn, Tuesday Weld, Jim Belushi in his first role. What do you think about the film Thief from Michael Mann? I think this movie rules. I am a very big fan of this movie. I think it's super cool. Uh, I could just start showering it with compliments uh, that don't sound too critical. I just think it's dope. I think it looks super cool. I could just talk like this for a long time, but I'll pause before i just kind of go off what about you um well first because you said it rules i instinctively in 90s fashion want to say that it drools just to react eloquently (laughs) Um, with rhythm and style uh i i also have similar feelings i don't think i am as enamored with it as you i think there's a lot of editing choices that i think are good choices but really like restrain me back and i get Hmm. i don't know how i feel about 
the fact that a lot of these scenes were not intended to be stitched like this. Um, I'll, I'll just give you something right off the top of my head. Do you remember the first heist where he goes into the cafe and, uh, you know, the, the guy with the, um, the manicure starts rifling through the diamonds. Mm. Then he gets up to leave. Mm -hmm. Then it cuts and he's talking to Tuesday. Yeah. 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 That was not in that scene. That was like, I think Mm. supposed to be over like three or four scenes. And then they removed all those and they just edited the ending of a different location where he talks to Tuesday into that conversation. So we're going from one location to another location, but it feels like it could be the same location. We don't know for sure. And there, that happens a lot in this movie. And I respect Michael Mann a lot for making those choices. But it also feels like I have to kind of not improve the score, but like keep it steady or like drop a point for each time that mm-hmm. happens. And it happens a lot. Um, so I'm I'm conflicted. But when there's metal on fire and smoke and tangerine dream scores playing i am fucking in <laughs> yeah uh that that is quite the stitch i would never i would not have guessed that those were two completely different locations i would definitely have had to have been paying closer attention to uh that scene that's pretty interesting that's quite commentary the helps quite the yeah uh cosmetics job there editing wise um yeah but i mean uh i Assume you watched the Criterion disc as well, the Blu-ray. Yes. Yeah. yes, we both, I believe, have this one. Yeah, I mean, you just have to. Dear listener, uh, I held up the case. Yeah, I mean, I very much responded to the look of this film. Um, it, you know, it's I think very stylized, um, set in Chicago, um, of something that I, I is kind it of... though. Let me bring up another problem I have with the film. Hmm. Is it? Though. Do you think it's set elsewhere? I didn't. And then I rewatched it this morning with commentary. Mm. And I heard them repeatedly say, now we're supposed to be in LA. And I got very Mm. confused. Apparently, Mm. when they're scoping the second job on top of the building, Jim Belushi's Mm. wearing a a nice, uh, like, Hawaiian-style shirt, Decord with flowers. And everyone else is supposed to be wearing, from what I understand, a yellow shirt. And this is supposed to advertise the sun of California. And they're supposed to be mm. in California. And his new house is supposed to be in mm. L.A. And mm. when they go to the beach, that's because they're already in California. And mm. I got very confused about where the time and the, like, what the timing and the places were about, like, where this job is. Like, how we're back in, like, because I thought we were in Chicago. Um, so the places got very confusing for me, and that's where I docked a few more points. Like the the more mm. I paid attention to to what was being said within the film and in the commentary, um, but they say in the film like L.A. over and over again, um, it got confusing for me because it didn't it it didn't feel like they switched locations. Yeah, I definitely I just his uh, dealership was in Chicago, right? I very much assumed that almost everything was in Chicago 
because I just only because I had heard this was a very Chicago movie. It I is. don't even remember if they say Chicago, but I thought everything was in Chicago except they, for they the brief detour to and, the beach where uh, they say San Diego. Yes, well, they they say how was San Diego, um, but Michael Mann, um, he grew up in Chicago, and that's where the kind of impetus for this film came from. Yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, like the the plot details aside, just uh, you know this. Um, the story doesn't matter. The well, movie, Taylor. <laughs> not well. I mean, that's not why. Like, I enjoy Miami Vice or even really Black Hat. Like, it you know, it's the personality and the in the direction and the style and, and the ideas. Like, I, I think the some of the plot details do fall a little bit by the wayside. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know that I care which city it's in that much. It's just about how the city looks and what the city kind of I completely reflects agree. about. That's why I character. can look over it. I completely yeah. agree. Um, that that's why I got confused because I like I'd been looking over it and I was like, we're supposed to be in LA. When did we go to LA? Why did we go to LA? How yeah. did we go to LA? That would be confusing for sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, just the look of the film, the way it feels like old fashioned noir, but also very modern, very eighties at the mm-hmm. same time. Is it just looks so good? The the streets. I thought a lot about the asphalt jungle in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, Me just, too. Yeah, that that um, that state, that feeling of just feeling like the city's kind of inescapable in some way, I think, is super, super um, tangible. And the streets just kind of like they're rain slick, but they feel sticky to me, like they're inky or something like that, because they're so yeah. strikingly black and wet. Um, kind of the blue sheen of the city um, is just such a unique and gorgeous look. I think it's just just stunning the the images. Um, I think James Conn is great. I was, I remember, the, I think I said during our first impression that I wasn't sure what to make of James Conn. I'm a big fan of him here. Uh, do you respond to okay to him? Yeah, yeah. Well, yes and no. Like I think he does the part. Like I think he is the part. As an actor, I I think there's a lot of question marks I have. I think Michael Mann created magic on this film and that's really all i can break it down to like i i don't think james Kahn is a prolific performer i think that mm. he needs someone like michael mann who's not only making a film that is very physical but he's making a film where everything is practical where every tool is a real tool where james Kahn actually knows that tool and is familiar with that tool and can use that tool so that he's not really performing he's just doing different things that he knows how to do and there's a camera there yeah yeah, very much living the part. But he, I think he does deliver like his best line probably in his career that I've ever seen in this film. Um, Which one's that? That is when he's having a conversation with Tuesday Weld over uh, the dining room or the over the restaurant table after he uh, tells her let's let's get rid of this uh, what is it? Let's get rid of this Mickey Mouse shit and talk mm. about a relationship. Mm, Something yeah, like yeah. that where where they just go from like. On their first date to let's start this relationship. Maybe yeah. it was Minnie Mouse shit, but it, it was something like he like he just delivers like one of those great lines. And you're like, okay, and then it, it proceeds into like this ten minute dialogue at this this table in the restaurant, and it's I I I can't imagine he ever had a better performance. That's yeah, definitely a crucial scene for sure. And the the stakes and like psychology. the length of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I, um, 
I think he's good. You know, when I think of heist movies like this, I so often think of Rafifi. Well, Rafifi and in Rafifi, the crew, you know, <laughs> yeah. like all the people involved in the heist. There's the driver. There's the, I don't know, you know, the, the, the safe cracker, the smooth talker. It's always about mm-hmm. the crew. It's very ensemble driven. But this is he, he has his people. He has Jim Belushi. Um, there are these sub character or uh, supporting characters. But this is very much a focused character study on him in mm-hmm. particular. And um what 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 the woman means to him is is sort of uh, a just one aspect of this thing. So I I do think it's kind of cool for how it marries a really kind of concentrated character study with almost kind of like abstract heist movie. Um, that's a pretty unique um, melding, I would think. I completely agree. You said something earlier about the the streets being inky, and that's exactly what they are. Because not only do they sheen with this vibrancy in the dark when the light is cast on them, you feel like if you were to touch them, you would become sluggish and you would be mired. Mm-hmm. Like if you were walking in these streets, like they would just kind of stick to the the soles of your shoes. Mm-hmm. And it's just fascinating how Michael Mann can really get some of that imagery. Um, he also near the very end of the film has this fascinating shot where he's, he's got like this close-up view with the entire camera on the hood of the car and the car's been waxed Mm. and it's been through the rain so it's hyper reflective and he's just driving down the street and there's all these beautiful neon lights and normal Mm -hmm. lights being cast in the hood of the car and i could just watch that for an hour and like that that is like the type of experimental cinema that i am just all about Dude, it is like drug like. I think it like I think yeah. it looks so good. Uh there are you know, the scenes at his dealership at night. Mm-hmm. Um particularly towards the end when he's going to unfortunately destroy that dealership, but it looks so good with those with the the lights kind of strung kind of slack over the mm-hmm. the rows of cars. Dude, so when good. he lights the car on fire and you see the gasoline on fire falling from the hood of the car to the pavement, you're like who the fuck else lights real cars on fire? Yeah, I think I think the uh, explosions are very tactile and feel very real because they um, are. And just look incredible. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> everything's yeah. practical. That's, I mean, in the commentary, James Con said that like this was one of his easiest acting jobs to be good and his best one because everything was actually real. He didn't have to pretend shit. In his yeah. own words, because Khan's a very plain speaker. I don't have to pretend shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I I could just be who I was. I'm from the Bronx, New York. You know, <laughs> good role for him. Uh, my, Michael Mann at one point says that like he couldn't have cast you know anybody rural, anyone residential, mm. anyone suburban. They had to have grown up their whole life in the city to play this part because Khan really has to be on edge and he has to be not only someone who is of the city but who is ex-con without being a con and the only way you can do that is to have really as you mentioned come up in the asphalt jungle you have yeah. to be of this nature you have to know these wise guys you have to know what it means when you have these conversations you have to know how to handle at the lna plating plant that dealing with that guy when he's in complete denial 99 guys out of 100 are going to believe that guy's denial of knowing whoever this guy is that walked into his office. But James Kahn, he does not care. Yeah, you you were 
describing his, his voice a little bit and you know, the way he talks about the very first guy he goes looking for after they pull off this first heist that we sort of just jump into kind mm-hmm. of in media res that the film kicks yeah, off. Yeah, the L.A. plating uh, office. Uh, yeah, exactly. L&A, That's yeah. Wait. L.A. No, plating office. He, yeah, yeah. He goes to that guy and uh-huh. he's asking that guy about the guy named Gags. Uh-huh. Just the way he says that name, Gags, with this Chicago accident accent is so satisfying some of just the texture of of the the dialogue in this are so satisfying uh i was just trying to remember one quote or one quote that i really liked which is when he goes to um one of these supporting characters who's going to help to build some of the tools they're going to use for this the main heist of the movie i fucking love that scene and it confuses me because like the acting is so horrendous from the head metallurgist metallurgist But it's so distinctive. It's such a sense of place. Like, how do you marry a bad performance with a beautiful sense of place? Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, But the metallurgist asks him, you know, hey, how you doing? And he says, me, I'm golden, glowing, scoring like a champ. Like, that is the coolest way to say I'm doing fine that I've ever heard. And I was a big fan of that line. That's fantastic. Some of this dialogue is just so tossed off. It's never underlined. It's played totally naturalistically. But I'm like, wait, did he just say that? Because that is the coolest line I've ever heard. Um, That reminds me of another thing in the commentary. Like, three quarters of the way through the movie, uh, James Caan brings up uh, a choice that he and Michael Mann made before the film started shooting about, like, who this character is and how he's supposed to talk and behave. And they decided that he is never supposed to use a contraction. Because mm. if you use a contraction, you have to repeat yourself sometimes. Mm. And if you have to repeat yourself, then you're wasting time. Mm. And if you're wasting time, then you're using up your most valuable resource because he spent so much time in jail behind mm. bars. And so this is a guy who never wants to be misunderstood, who never wants to repeat himself. So mm-hmm. he never uses contractions. And I was like, that is so true. But I couldn't put my finger on like why this guy was such a clear-spoken G, like why he was so indisputably exactly who he was and what he was saying always. And it's because he never uses a contraction. There's mm. never any confusion between himself and another person in the life. They are always in complete understanding of him. And if they don't retreat, if they don't treat him in turn, you know, that kind of almost justifies to the viewer whatever behavior pattern he chooses to take with them meaning violence yeah i I love that and it's just so in keeping with kind of the the preciseness of his craft you know even just the opening scene establishes that right off the bat the 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 preciseness uh and efficiency with which they can do a job uh there's like i don't think there's any dialogue in those first couple scenes where we watch him james con get picked up by the by jim belushi i think they get taken to a their destination they crack the safe there's just the music just the synths um but you know you establish in those scenes just the professionalism how good they are at it and how it's really this like it feels like this kind of like mechanical or industrial art that they're performing it looks so good almost feels like performance art um and how it's unfolding um but you can almost, yeah, you just know that that guy is not going to be a a sloppy speaker in any way because mm-hmm. he's so um, organized and process oriented. It's all very, very, very process centric. That's so clear. Mm-hmm. Um, 
we talked about the the ending with the cars being on fire. Um, I'm sure that scene will come up again, but I, I do want to mention, you know, he takes the the kind of postcard out of his wallet there. And that postcard, mm-hmm. I think, is a very interesting thing because it kind of, um, it's a stand-in for very much someone who's an ex-con who, who's been in in jail because rather than having it be a prison wall where you've kind of got your... Mm your future life mapped out, he's kind of got this thing on his wallet about his life. It's very much like a prison wall inside of a a big billfold wallet where he unfolds it Mm. and it's got four squares and it's got like this, this future that he wants for himself and these things that matter to him and these things he cares about and what he wants and who he wants to be. And he, in that scene, he crumples it and it's, it's this great slow pan down while it pulls back on the zoom and it really gets the whole lot catching on fire in it but i i think that you know the first time we see that and you see willie nelson's face and you kind of you don't really know what you're looking at i think the more viewings you get with that the, the more interesting of a, of a piece that is to the film because it really informs his character in not just his wants and his dreams but his past and how he's got a prison wall in his wallet mm-hmm. and these things were always holding him back, but propelling him forward um, in a very interesting mm. way. I, I love that. I I had not imagined that on the prison wall, but that totally makes sense. That is what would give you hope on the inside is, is this assortment of images. Um, I just happened to conceive of it as a different way, in a different way, which was as something like a blueprint. Like not all that different from the other blueprints they're looking at as they're planning these schemes. And as he talks with Tuesday Weld about just how um, deadening this the effect of prison was and the violence endured within prison um, and, and that he had to uh, enact, protect himself. Uh, he talks about just how just deadening it was. He has that line about uh, you have to, you know, accept that nothing means nothing. And it's just this kind of nihilistic, kind of heartbreaking uh, worldview this guy has mm-hmm. sort of in, in, um, entrenched in himself that like he almost has to kind of like like I can't I don't know that I feel like the the idea of this life he has for himself is something that he innately desires it's almost something like he's trying to kind of intellectualize a little bit like he's trying to he thinks this is something that will create meaning in his life again um and that's why it's like a little clunky almost when he's saying you know like you fit into this like you're going to be a part of this plan um it's not the most romantic kind of coming together he's saying i think you're a piece in this puzzle that's going to give life meaning because i I don't know that it has any um just, just, I don't know. It, it's such an v- interesting visual representation of his um, attitude towards life um, on paper. Great little prop. I, I agree with almost everything you said, but you, you said something interesting. You said, give life meaning again. Mm. What gives you the sense that he had meaning in his life before. I maybe shouldn't have said again because he, 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 I don't know that we hear that much about what happened prior to prison and if it was a loss or if he just went in and it felt like this is a guy just who just doesn't even know what the what good in life there is. But um, it just seemed like uh, 
something that almost didn't come supernaturally to him. When he's talking about adopting that kid, it seems like it's something that he he thinks will give meaning to his life, but not mm-hmm. that he is instinctively, intuitively drawn towards it, it necessarily, mm-hmm. um, if that makes any sense. Um, especially, like, he doesn't care which kid it is, and he, he says so in, in as many words. Um, what words? I'm not going to repeat those. <laughs> <laughs> See what I did there? In very v- vulgar terms. Uh-huh. Um, but, yeah. I tried. You can't say I didn't try. <laughs> to your point, um, it's not, he's not necessarily a guy who, like, who lost it all and is trying to get that back. That's not, that feels like a, that's a different kind of mm-hmm. noir. Um. So a, a couple things there, um, just within the milieu of of man as a director, I he either shortly before this or right after this make, makes a couple more homages to to prison. I think the most interesting mm. one is the Jericho Mile. I think prison is on his mind a lot. Obviously, justice is on his mind a lot, just like mm. waterfronts, which I I think we both are kind of in awe of how many times he can figure out a way to make a decision in front of a body of water. I mean, mm-hmm. good God, you make it five-sixths of the way through the insider and you think it's not going to come up and then right outside like, the oh, there it fucking is. courthouse, <laughs> there there it is. Um, very passively, less less homage-y. Um, so that's that's interesting. Um, but he, he says that in the commentary, Michael Mann says something to the effect of how the longer you are on the inside, the more you realize how restricted and restrained you are from your own biological urges. Mm-hmm. And you realize that you you don't get that. You don't get to have a kid. You don't get to, to do mm-hmm. that. And that, that that becomes a focus if you ever get out because mm-hmm. then you get to do this thing that, that you couldn't do that was taken away from you. You literally couldn't have done that thing. And I think that that's a, a really interesting lens to view the choices of his criminals through in this film and in all films because he's so open about the fact that that's the that's their biological urge and they Mm. they're in jail and they don't get to have this this kid like they they just don't get to it's not that they wanted to or Mm. they didn't want to it's that they were told that they couldn't and now that becomes a focus of their identity. And that mm. just seems so interesting. Um, mm. And I think that really informs the way that he viewed Khan's character here. And the reason why Khan wanted a kid was because, like, who who would want to rear a child more than someone who was told they couldn't? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, I mean, it's I, maybe the saddest scene in the movie is the one where he uses the the, the unrepeatable words, unfortunately. Um, it, but it's at the adoption agency, and mm. he is describing his um, uh, his designer. own childhood. Yeah, his own his own his own childhood in a state run uh, facility. facility or yeah institution or whatever. Um, but that that seems so personal, right there. Like he. Uh, he, you just know how bad he wants it in that moment, how and how pissed off he is. Um, uh, yeah, good scene. One of the more um, directly emotional scenes, I think. I one hundred percent agree. It's it's kind of it's terrifying in its um, truthfulness. Now you know um, 
commentary that I listened to of the film, it was recorded while uh, Heat was being made, I think. Mm. Um, James Caan at the end of it says, uh, next time you call me, just know that I won't do anything with you the next day. Ostensibly saying that, like, Man was in the middle of Heat or starting Heat, and he'd gotten a call from Man the day before they recorded the commentary. So I'll say Khan wasn't that, like, interesting to hear (laughs) the takes of, and Man's always restrained, unfortunately. So the commentary Mm. didn't give that much away, but it it was just, it was an interesting thing. The things that Man would open up about, about, like, the things that influenced him and the the wise guys and the thieves of Chicago Mm. when he was growing up that you know he'd hear tell of that really informed his choice to make the film i found very interesting um the cop do you remember the cop who who stops james con at one point oh yeah uh i i what's the name it's it's italian right like urizzi or something like yeah, that he's yeah he's italian yeah. but um con calls him a puerto rican during yeah the, yeah yeah the uh interrogation interview room sequence and he freaks out at that um, so that guy was actually a master thief who um, was part of the, I, I don't rem- the technical advisors is what they kept <laughs> calling it in the commentary. The technical advisors of the film were these master thieves. Mm. And he, he ended up playing that, that role. And I, I just think it's so interesting that the, the first instinct of a young Michael Mann in 1980, 1981, I know this came out in 81. I don't know when it was filmed is to take the thieves and make them the cops. And then you, uh, James Caan also talks about how when he was growing up in, in the Bronx, like, you know, half the families you knew, one brother was a cop, the other mm. brother was a thief. And mm. those were interesting Thanksgiving dinners that he was a part of. <laughs> yeah, that, that almost sounds like, you know, a Scorsese Chicagoan or something right? That, mm-hmm. like that, right? Um, yeah, and like... All of that adds so much authenticity to it, which only makes the fact that the movie is so stylized and heightened kind of that much more interesting. Because I don't just, I would not describe this as like social realism in any way, although there is things about it that are very real, like the way people are just behaving, the way they speak, but the the color, you know, that I don't think that is what Chicago would look like exactly if you were to go walk around it at night. That's more about how it feels to him. But are you um, sure it's Chicago? <laughs> oh, again, <laughs> if it is Chicago, I suppose. Um, yeah, the, that police officer you're describing has another one of those lines I liked where he says something like, you know, I'm I'm here to help smooth out the, the humps and the bumps, mm-hmm. something like that in a great just kind of. I might be wrong, but I feel like in the commentary they said that, like, that's just something he said. So good. So good. Um, But, yeah, back to that idea of imprisonment. I mean, I feel like that's one of the kind of the key feelings of the movie is that while he is an ex-con, the city itself is its own kind of prison that is just inescapable. And, um, you know, the... Uh, not quite the climax, but when he does ultimately realize that he is sort of um, uh, enmeshed with this crook that he thought he would be in with for just one deal, it just seems like, you know, even when you're not engaged in a conventional or ordinary or legal kind of capitalism, money and work can commingle in a way that is its own kind of prison or it's almost it's almost closer to like being enslaved by this guy um 
which I think does make this ultimately a pretty bleak movie for me in the way that he is an ex-con who is ultimately feeling maybe just as kind of imprisoned as ever, even though he so badly wants to be an independent work alone and all that. Yeah, I think I think we agree about a lot of stuff there, and I will try to remember all the different things I want to touch on. Mm. First, in his later films, I think that man gets a lot more eloquent with how he shows that being an, a true agent of non-corrupted justice is mm. almost just as imprisoning as being a convict itself. Mm. I think that Black Hat is a very interesting depiction of that mm-hmm. and trying to actually go for moral justice rather than by the book justice. I think Miami Vice goes for both. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think it's a very interesting Michael Mann motif that to, just to try to juggle that stuff um, and to always end up making the ex-cons almost without fail be more reputable than any depictions of justice that he has Mm -hmm. um but also there is a sense within michael mann films consistently of the faustian bargain and Mm -hmm. within the commentary michael mann said like fucking 12 times faustian bargain faustian Mm -hmm. bargain faustian bargain as soon as he sits down at that table in the beginning with the diamonds and the man with the manicure. Michael Mann loves to point out that's the, you notice, he, he says exactly, notice the manicure. Mm. And the next thing he says is, this is when he makes the Faustian bargain that he doesn't understand that he made. And from that point on, every time we see him, that character that he's interacting with, I don't remember that character's name, um, he he's always adding something to the terms of the agreement, asking Mm. for more, taking more, offering to give something. Mm. And I think in his own words, you know, he he says, what I gave you about the child, I gave you on lease. Mm -hmm. It's not yours. You don't own it. I gave it to you. It's mine. I'm letting you have it for now. And I think that is so interesting to bring to the rest of Michael Mann's filmography. And and you can tell if you listen to the commentary, and it's very interesting to me that he's in the middle of shooting Heat when he records his commentary. His obsession with Faustian bargains and these deals, what that means for anyone that's not familiar with Faust, is deals with the devil. Mm-hmm. You're making a deal with the devil, you don't understand you made a deal with the devil, and the day to collect is coming. And you're going to be in a much worse situation than you were at the start of the deal that you just bargained. And it's just, it's so fascinating to me, his obsessions lasting this long over time. And how ahead of the curve he was in some ways, right? Like, this is a 1981 film. Tangerine mm-hmm. Dream does the score. Um, it's a it's ahead just to have a band do the entire score of a, of an original film to begin with, mm. but he went to the studio with them in Europe and he was playing with faders and and seeing how the sound was. He was asking them to inform some of the choices they made, um, the ending shootout lead up sequence and and the wrap up um, by Pink Floyd's The Wall were a couple mm. songs from The Wall that he wanted them to kind of use as reference points to the compositions they made. And he wanted certain scenes to sound kind of like shavings and drills going, mm-hmm. metal shavings and drills. 
and just the the vision of a director in the 80s doing that i he he's a very interesting um filmmaker right he's i don't think we would put him as part of new hollywood or you know what, what's mm. the group that we put spielberg and de palma with what's that New Hollywood, the movie that brats Hollywood? or New movie Hollywood. Brats. There we go, yeah. movie brats. Yeah. Right, he's not old Hollywood. He's not really new Hollywood. He's something in between. Like he's his own osmosis, kind of like Terrence Malick, where it's these guys are just doing things that informed cinema in a way that is very interesting to me. Right, he's he's at the beginning of a decade that I ended up giving a Soderbergh. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I feel like I usually hear Michael Mann associated with the. Uh, so-called uh, vulgar arturism uh, phrase, which honestly yeah. I still don't quite understand. I, I feel like uh, that means Nicholas Vinding Refn, and I felt like it, before he was a filmmaker, that's what they meant. <laughs> yeah, I hear it associated with Paul W.S. Anderson a lot. That's oh, his name, right? interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah, okay. yeah. Resident Evil guy. Yeah, um, but uh, Monster Hunter. Yeah, yeah, exactly that guy. Um, yeah, um, you know, someone who is, I don't know, I shouldn't even try to to define that phrase. I don't think I totally understand it, to be let, honest. Let me but. just give you an anecdote <laughs> from the commentary where he says he doesn't like grotesque nudity or grotesque vulgarity. And the fact that the man that said that in 1990-whatever, when Heat was being made, also is the man that is described by vulgar auteurism as just... Mm-hmm. Wow, that's an interesting thing to chew on. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like he's one of the directors who's consistently made kind of big budget movies that kind of consistently don't connect with popular audiences. Like from, I, I don't know box office numbers off the top of my head. I, I could be just uh, making this up in my head, but I feel like everything from Miami Vice to Public Enemies to Black Hat... I don't feel like any of those made a splash, really, with audiences generally. No, I think Heat and The Last of the Mohicans was the last time he did well, probably. Totally. You can watch scenes from these movies, and you can imagine studios being like, oh, yeah, we'll take this guy. And then people watching Miami Vice and being like, I have no idea what just happened plot-wise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, that, and that may be hurting him a little bit. Um, I guess The Insider, that, that might have done really well. Pacino. Totally. That's much more... Crow. Uh, much more... Uh, intelligible. And five years after this film, he made a movie which I didn't personally like, Manhunter, which was the the beginning of a very long-running Hannibal Lecter series in Mm. the film world, you know? Like, he he was ahead of things. I guess Ali did well, right? The the Will Smith 2001 film. So I, I guess, you know, for a while he had a thing. I know Collateral was 2004, probably his last really good performing film I, I remember a lot of people seeing that i don't know if that was just because i was really into attending the cinema then i was in middle school i could walk to the theater that was one of the films that i walked to and saw on a friday yeah uh i know we're broadening the conversation a bit but that's fine i i personally have been cooler on collateral by quite a bit i um, am too now that i rewatched it oh yeah i i think he he did one of the most interesting things with Tom Cruise that I've ever seen done. I think Jamie Foxx went way outside his wheelhouse, but that film is a miss. But the two yeah. performances are some of the most interesting performances that those two actors have ever gotten to do. 
And what I really want more than anything is to just see another Tom Cruise film with Michael Mann and Jamie Foxx as a supporting actor or co-star is like Mm. money for Michael Mann. Like Michael Mann, Michael Mann and Quentin Tarantino can cash checks with Jamie Foxx. No one else can do Jamie Foxx right, but those two boys can. Yeah, it's 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 been a minute since I, I saw it, but I was less high on that one. That one only stands out a little bit because I kind of think about each movie in terms of its like representation of different sides of the law, right? Miami mm-hmm. Vice were following the, the, the cops and, and and D for following the criminal collateral. We have our kind of everyday man in that one who is Jamie Foxx. He's just a cab driver um, and who, who's just kind of in neither. So it's kind of unique for that. But also, um, Tom Cruise is an anti-hero slash a villain. Yeah, um, yeah. It's very interesting. Jamie Foxx, once again, I think maybe he's not bald in this one, but he was balding in Ali. And it's it's just very interesting how he, like, gives Jamie, like, these particular things to build his character off of. And then just, I think that because, as James Conn said, everything's practical, guys like Jamie Foxx can just really turn it on. Mm, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, about Ali, did you watch Ali? I did watch Ali. Yeah, What'd that's you think? that's the one where he was uh, he was bald, like straight down the middle, almost with, mm, the, mm. with a buzz. I I liked that film. I was very impressed. I think that that actually has the most interesting boxing cinematography that I've probably ever seen. Mm. Um, I I can't think of a film that does it better. I can think of films that synthetically did like technically better shots. Um, things like like Southpaw, where like they construct and choreograph everything but it mm. in ali it was really just shooting boxing sequences and i i i really was enamored by those sequences i think the film as a whole has lulls has highs but those mm. those sequence like the opening boxing sequence um one of the best ones of all time yeah put it up yeah. there with raging bull i remember liking a lot of the fighting sequences in that too i, I do remember kind of feeling like it did ultimately succumb to some of the things that i yeah. Don't enjoy as much about any biopic. It did feel like the most exactly. kind of conventional the in biopic way. conventions where like we're we're watching his side story with Malcolm X and the assassination of MLK. Um, I think you have it here at a three and a half. I'd probably just honestly give it one more half star. Mm. Yeah, I just have it at a four. Um, I I might be at a high three and a half, low four, somewhere in there. I I totally agree, but I I just think that some of his shoots, him directing action sequences is very very interesting here because it's outside of his normal go-to um that's that's also Mm -hmm. why i think i love thief so much it's so physical when he's breaking into these metal boxes and metal contraptions Mm -hmm. with these metal devices and the way that they shoot those like um god the last safe they get into he somehow has a camera with god knows how scorched a lens in there Mm -hmm inside the safe and it's shooting out towards towards the the door of the safe that they're breaking through mm. and you're seeing all this beautiful light being cast by this this rod mm. to weld through it and it's it's beautiful to look at but it's also like how did you get the shot so clear and so pristine like you if you didn't put plexiglass in front of it which i have to imagine you did and this lens must be scorched. Like, this camera must be shot. Like, it must have been a one and done. Yeah, and I. it's weird how those high scenes 
for me, I, I, I feel very little tension in terms about the likelihood of their being caught. I don't know about you, but I don't think there is really even a chance in that scene that they're going to be caught. So for a scene to be purely dedicated, just the artistry of what of what they're doing and the the kind of the visual splendor of it at those as the those sparks are showering just like you said is something pretty unique where it's always always it's almost almost always about what's going to go wrong with the heist whereas with these guys i don't really feel like anything's going to go wrong necessarily um exactly after they solve the problem of how to do it you're never worried about if they're going to it's just the choreography in like the the beauty of them doing it. You're talking about the beauty of the the weld and the sparks and flying. I totally agree, but I think that equally as beautiful or interesting to me, at least, is when they they cut through the roof in the very beginning and they start mm. doing the the testing to get the right wire to make it so that the mm. alarm can't go off. And I, just the the careful attention to that and the focus on it. That does just as much for me because it's it's less flashy, but it's just as um, committed. It's just as interesting. It has just as much or it has more attention almost because they could have set off the alarm potentially. Um, mm-hmm. I just and they're dangling from the rooftop over the elevator shaft like there's there's a lot of stake there. And it's just it's beautiful to look at, even though it's just kind of ordinary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's. It's pretty great. I mean, I, the sense you get that he is so um, admiring of this craft is, is kind of unique. There is, you know, very little moralizing in his films in general. I think no, he about is a lot what of the criminals uh, are doing technical advisors mm-hmm. on staff with him while this is going on. So he's definitely a little bit more reverent to these thieves than one would expect. Yeah, for sure. Um, what else? Any other thoughts coming to um, mind? Interestingly, I mentioned that this is Jim Belushi's first film. Mm-hmm. Um, this is also Dennis Farina's first film. He's uh, He plays, I think, an L.A. cop in this film, which is where the L.A.-Chicago distinction comes in. And he was actually still an L.A. cop when they were shooting this. Mm. And I think that he, he does something some sort of uh, interrogation scene or, or beat up scene at one point. And his, his real partner on the force is helping him hmm. do the scene. And I found it fascinating because this guy we've seen in saving private Ryan snatch manhunter midnight run out of sight. Get shorty. Hmm. I mean, reindeer games, bottle shock. Like he just went on to have the, like this crazy career. Let me, let me show you a photo of him here. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. Like, isn't it crazy? That's his first film. I did and not know that. Jim Belushi's first film. Um, while they were shooting this, John Belushi was shooting a film in Chicago as well. I think it was Blues Brothers, but I'm not positive. Mm. And they had a bar open. And apparently whenever a rap ended early or whenever there wasn't a super early call time, everybody from this went to the Blues Bar and was oh. partying with John as well as Jim. That sounds so like it was, a good time. Yeah, and, and Dan Aykroyd was there, and it, it sounds like this was a very fun film set based on the way that, that James was talking about it and when he would kind of stop explaining what exactly these activities were. Mm, yeah, yeah. 
Jim Belushi has one of the lines I like when he comes to James Caan's new house, which is kind of suburban. And Trees, he, shrubs. Yeah, he's not even speaking in complete sentences. He does. It's like he's, like, you know, just so unfamiliar with family life, suburban life, that he is looking at the tree and the bush like it is just something he's never even seen before. Mm-hmm. Tree, bush, um, which is unlike anything he would ta- how he would talk about his work his his criminal craft um the, the the idea that it's so unfamiliar to him he can't even form a really like a complete sentence is kind of funny uh but again totally tossed off just moves right along uh but a nice touch i completely agree belushi i i really like him in this the the sequence where he's killed i, I think is a, a fascinating performance from him and showed how long of a career he went on to have mm-hmm. um I, I could talk about a lot of things. I, I think the last thing I want to bring up is just totally anecdotal and really offers no information other mm. than as your introduction was, dude, this looks dope. Yeah. Um, so the third time I watch this, I'm watching these opening credits and it says Tuesday Weld. I start laughing mm. to myself because your last name is Weld. And the first thing we see is the cutting of the metal. It's just like, what a Too fitting to cast true. decision. This is amazing. What's next? We're starting on a Tuesday. <laughs> I think she's great. Um, I think she's interesting for how responsive she is to James Caan in that mm-hmm. diner scene where he pitches just becoming a part of his After family life plan. the bar. Yeah. Um, you know, it's... It is interesting that she is as responsive to it as she is. Um, and I could be going totally out on a limb here, but when he tells her, you got to get out of here, he realizes this is falling apart. Uh, she says something like, I'm your woman, you're my man. Um, the fact that she said that line, I'm your woman, and she has this baby, she can't have a baby that they got from somewhere else kind of feels like what the actual film i'm your woman was maybe sort of like jumping off from i have no idea if that's an actual reference or not but the idea that that film the rachel brosnahan one that is that there was a prime release um is about the uh crime man's wife getting a baby that's mm. not hers yeah, yeah, yeah. because she can't have babies and then having to figure out how to take care of it. I was like, it feels like there's a link there or something like that. Um, but that that's is my, uh, my own dotted line. That's interesting. Um, before we get to favorite scenes, um, I, I would be remiss to not discuss the very last scene of the film in which um, after the Faustian bargain has uh, occurred and he comes to terms with the fact that it did, he, as you mentioned, sends Tuesday and the baby away, and he grabs his lead slinger, and he goes to get some redemption after lighting a bunch of cars on fire. Um, there's a prolific shootout with uh, a little bit more unnecessary slow motion and crunch and explosion of blood than... I think is necessary, but at, I agree. at, at yeah. the end of the uh, the sequence, he ends up walking down the road. What do you think he's walking down the road to? The director and the actor disagreed about this in the commentary. If I think I told you, I don't know if you, you knew that beforehand, but James Caan had a different read than Michael Mann about this. What do you think? 
where he's going to, I, I think I know, I think I feel pretty confident saying that I don't think he's going back to Tuesday weld by any means. I think the crunching of his little postcard and throwing that out the window is seems like pretty clear evidence to me that he doesn't think that is any any longer a plausible future for him but in terms of what he actually is going to do i just know that it's not that i don't know i don't think it's a happy ending though i don't think it is something good i see it as a pretty bleak uh ending and i think his future might be bleak that's all i can say i feel very confident about what about you i i think i'm in total agreement with you i i james Kahn. You know, he he thought that he was going to go find Tuesday because, you know, he he ended up winning that shootout. But mm. for me, I'm just sitting there knowing that Michael Mann didn't think that mm. and that he didn't tell that to uh, Tangerine Dream because in the Tangerine mm. Dream commentary, they're like, so as we were composing this scene, you know, Michael Mann told us that this is when the Faustian bargain debt is coming due and that, you know, everything that he'd had before is gone. And so, like, I I felt like whatever Michael Mann had told that team, he didn't want to repeat it to us, but they repeated what he said to them. Mm. And so we kind of get this inside look. And so that te- that informs me a little bit. But also, I mean, you, you have to wonder what about the Chicago cops? Yeah. What about everyone else that wonders where he is? That, that knows what he does. He has to go kill them now too, or he has to run one of the two. Um, and so I don't, I don't really know, but I, I know that I don't think anymore that it was Tuesday. I think the first watching I had that read where he was going back to the, her and the kid. And then the second viewing um, without commentary, I kind of had a question. And then hearing that with commentary that Michael Mann just never had that reading for it um, really changed me towards being certain that that's, that's not where Khan's going. Yeah. The score. Yeah, definitely. I I seem to remember it swelling a bit, seeming to Mm -hmm. suggest a bit of, of triumph, uh, which he kind of made it out of this scene so it is a yeah a brief triumph i suppose um but, but yeah he's walking um, down that inky black road and his his the soles of his shoes are going to get stuck in another shootout yeah the real the real takeaway for me is not that like family life is within reach now it is that there are other ways you can feel imprisoned you know you don't mm-hmm. have to be imprisoned to feel that um that's really the, the kind of the conclusion for me, whether he gets out of there alive or not. That's that's what leaves him so kind of um, looking so defeated as he goes around and blows up his life. It's not even though he might know at that moment that he could kill this boss and everybody and make it out alive. He kind of knows that, like, there is something so depressing about how imprisoned you can feel just because of forces like money and work and bosses um mm-hmm. who will who will exploit you um that that's the yeah. the depressiveness of that i think overwhelms any likelihood he might get My, back to michael man gets a little ramble about like m- marxist like worker mm. <laughs> class thing like at that particular moment where he's talking about that so that's it's interesting that you picked up on that anyways mm. um 
We should probably get to favorite scenes here. I I think that I'll have an anecdote and then give you mine. Mm. Do you have one? Favorite scene? Yeah. Favorite scene is probably, I mean, it's hard not to go with the main heist of the movie, but like in particular, even before you see them start to crack the safe, or not really crack the safe, burn the through the door of the safe it's that room that's so striking where the dining room yeah well it's weird it's very weird there it's like a they're in an office building but like there are the walls are marble they have little like you know kind of like candelabras off them um and then there's you would expect some kind of like wooden door not to not a big metallic vault right in the middle it just looks so much like something out of 2001 something sci-fi-esque it looks so out of the ordinary um that just takes that scene and just puts its completely own stamp on it relative to other high scenes which always look like just bank vaults this mm-hmm. looks like weirdly ornate um i love that uh so I'll go with that. What about you? Yeah, it's very striking. It makes no sense why there's tables in there. I no. Had some <laughs> um, so before I mentioned, um, he lights the car on fire. This gasoline like puddle falls off. It's on fire. Falls to the asphalt. Very interesting physical fire in this film. Mm. He at near the end of the film, he blows up his house, and one of the trees catches on fire from the building exploding. Thereby letting you know that building really fucking exploded. And it's insane. Like, what other film have you seen a building explode and a tree catches on fire? And, like, it all seems to be one-to-one ratio. Like, it's all legit. Like, and that's my anecdote. Like, that scene just kind of, like, it defines the film's, like, physicality and truth. It looks um, like it's in a normal neighborhood, too. Right? Yeah. yeah it's it's insane. Um I guess another anecdote, he blows up the fucking, the bar at one point, mm-hmm. and he says they blew up that bar at 3 a.m., and that did not go over well with the neighborhood. <laughs> Makes sense. I get um, that. But my favorite scene is when he brings out a Danish or a donut to mm. a fisherman, and they're in front of this beautiful, giant, reflective lake. And he says, you know what that is? That's the big sky chief. Mm. And that is the big sky. And you're looking at the big sky in the water. And the water is the sky. And the sky is the water. And it's just a beautiful image. And I, I don't think that Michael Mann ever truly captured the beauty of water in that way since this. I think the closest he came was a a sequence in Miami Vice on a beach. But even that, I don't think, touches the the calmness and the refraction of light and the the true meeting of justice and injustice being so temporally connected. Um, I I just think that's a beautiful sequence. And if I could have hit print... When I was mm. watching that image, I certainly would have. And I would have put it in a very expensive frame. Yeah, I remember, uh, this is a while ago, but when I was reading about Heat, uh, him talking about a painting uh, by the Canadian, I think, it's a, I think it's a painting, Canadian painter Colville. I think his name's Alex Colville. And it's this painting of a guy um, looking looking out on the ocean kind of in the, he's in the background and in the foreground is a 
a gun on a table. You see that painting and you think to yourself, you're like, that looks like a Michael Mann movie because of how frequent that image is at this point and mm-hmm. how um, striking it is every time it, it occurs in like most of these movies. There's some image of the water, as you've already stated. Um, but uh, yeah, anyways, it's a great scene. Anecdotally, in the uh, in the Alan A. Plating office, that first intro thing, there briefly is a painting on the wall of someone looking at a body of water with the reflection of the sky in it. Oh, weird. I wonder if that's it. That would be I, I don't think it, I don't remember a gun, but okay. I, I remember okay. I remember that and I was, you just made me think of that like yeah, it's He really loves He it. loves one motif. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is Thief. And that is another one in the can. Now you don't.